is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Jabbar. Defections from Syria, the Prime Minister's the latest, but could there be more willing to leave Assad's regime? What former members of the forces can do to improve their chances in the civilian job market? They do need to realise that they are a product and, and they have to present themselves as a product and sell themselves. And is there more to learn about World War II? We talk to military historian Anthony Beaver. So, was the defection of Syria's Prime Minister this week a major blow to the Assad regime, signalling the beginning of its end, or just a man and his family saving their skins, because they know its demise is inevitable? Fighting for control of the country's largest city continues today, with no side in overall control. Meanwhile, Iran is holding talks with countries it considers to have taken the right position on Syria. Well, I'm joined by Fawaz Jerjes, Professor of Middle Eastern Politics and International Relations at the London School of Economics and BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Professor Georges, um, hello there. Thanks for your time today. Uh, what can we read into the Prime Minister's defection? Well, I mean, it's a major blow to uh, Assad, the Assad regime. Uh, we are witnessing a slow and gradual disintegration of the Syrian state as opposed to the Syrian regime. Uh, the institutions and coalitions built by the Assads over four decades are fraying, coming apart. Uh, but the reality is the sources of power of the Assad regime do not really, uh, I mean, lie in formal institutions. They lie in the security apparatus. Uh, I take it that the Assad regime is falling back on his core supporters of minorities. So we should not confuse the thinning of institutions of the Syrian state with the weakening of the Assad regime. I don't buy the argument that we are beginning, witnessing the beginning of the Assad regime. It still has uh, tremendous coercive powers. Uh, it still has uh, resilience, support of minorities, not to mention the fact that the Syrian conflict now, I mean, Syria has become a war by proxies. Uh, you have a major, I mean, uh, uh, regional conflict taking place in Syria between the Iranian camp on the one hand and the Saudi-Turkish camp on the other hand. Indeed, and we mentioned there Iran holding talks with other interested parties in Tehran today, including Russia and China. What do you think Iran is hoping to achieve with this? Well, I mean, Iran has made it very clear it will not allow the ouster President Assad. It will not allow the destruction of the so-called the axis of resistance against Israel. That is Iran, Hezbollah, Hamas, uh, and Syria. And my take on it is that the Iranian uh, reading of the Syrian crisis is that the Assad regime is viable, that there is no existential threat uh, to President Assad and his regime, that it does have the coercive capacities to have things under control, as the fightings in Damascus and Aleppo have shown uh, so far. And it has made it very clear that Iran is willing to intervene directly if the survival of the Assad regime is at stake. And uh, in this particular sense, the Iranians have sent multiple messages to the United States and also to regional players, particularly Turkey and Saudi Arabia. Uh, Christopher, on the Syrian military, um, I understand uh, they're mainly Sunni and they're fighting and often targeting fellow Sunnis. Um, how important could this relationship be in the long term? What actually happens in terms of further defections? What you have is a concern 
not among perhaps the guys in the tanks, the guys with the, with the rifles in the army. You have a concern among the officer class that historically you could get defections within the ranks of the army. We've already seen people at, say, half-colonel level, colonel level, going off to Turkey or whatever. But what would happen, and it's a big thing to do, what would happen if large groups of them started breakaway, say, at battalion level, or they, they didn't carry out the orders to a T? That is the great concern. And so when you... You know, people start to say, ah, well, is it all weakened because the prime minister has gone? No prime minister in war in that situation has anything to do with the running of the, of, of the army or the air force, which are the two main elements fighting the, fighting the insurgents. So how far has Egypt come since the Arab Spring, which saw President Hosni Mubarak deposed? Perhaps the first big challenge for his successor, Mohamed Morsi, is the Sinai, where there's been fighting between Islamic militants and security forces since Sunday. Um, just remind us how this started and why the Sinai. Well, I mean, uh, suddenly we have discovered Sinai. Uh, Sinai has been festering for two decades. Uh, there is no economy in Sinai. Poverty is over 50%. The only economy that exists in Sinai is what we call the underground economy. Uh, that is basically uh, uh, criminalities. Uh, you're talking about smuggling goods and arms to Gaza, um, international uh, uh, migrants to Europe and other places. Uh, so what you have is that also you have uh, Gaza, uh, Sinai has become what I call an attractive destination for jihadis, fortune seekers and criminals. Um, this is not the first bombing or the last bombing. Uh, the reality is the Egyptian state has neglected uh, Sinai for almost uh, two decades and there are severe social challenges that need to be addressed in order to make sure that Sinai does not really become a foothold for criminalities and jihadism like other places in Yemen um, and uh, Afghanistan and other places. Professor Fawaz Yajaz from the LSE, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. The army has reached a milestone in Afghanistan by carrying out more than 5,000 unmanned flights in five years using one of its surveillance assets. 2-2 Battery, 3-2 Regiment's Royal Artillery controls the aircraft systems in theatre, including the Hermes 450, which monitors insurgent activity. Carla Prater has been to meet the crews and joins us now from our studio in Camp Bastion. Hello, Carla. What kind of systems are actually in place in theatre? Well, the Unmanned Aircraft Systems, or UAS, are operated here in Camp Bastion by 2-2 Battery, 3-2 Regiment Royal Artillery. Their aim is to provide surveillance and intelligence in theatre. They have three main types of unmanned aircraft at their disposal, which are in constant use. Let's start with the Hermes 450. There's quite a few of those here. It's the largest drone, about five to six metres long, with a camera underneath which records video in either infrared or electro-optical quality. It can be up in the air for about 17 hours at a time, although each flight does vary in its duration. Now, the Hermes has been in use in theatre since 2007, and during that time it's flown more than 5,300 flights. The Hermes 450 is their main bit of kit, but there's also the Desert Hawk, a smaller company-level asset, which you normally find out at the patrol bases and fobs. It looks like a model plane, really. It also collects video footage, but at a lower altitude. And then there's the T-Hawk, which is propelled by a fan and can be carried in a backpack. This can be used to help with surveillance over a small area. For example, if a vehicle patrol stops and needs to investigate something by the side of the road, the T-Hawk can be deployed to avoid putting lives at risk. You normally expect the artillery to be handling light guns, not certainly not this sort of thing, but this is a specialist duty, and Major Geraldine Montgomery is the commander of 2-2 Battery. 
We fly 24 hours a day, so uh, we're constantly providing surveillance support to the to the troops on the ground, um, mainly during the day, but we also fly at night so that they have that reassurance. We can go out and do lots of soaks and look at compounds of interest and the such like, uh, but also when they're out on the ground, we can provide top cover for them um, and look forward of their patrols and in-depth of their patrols and give them the support that they need while they're on the ground. So what kind of images are collected from these drones and how is the information used? Well, I had a tour of the area where the images are analysed. You have personnel from the artillery and the intelligence corps looking at the pictures as they come in. As you can imagine, if there's more than one drone in the sky at any one time, there's hours and hours of footage to follow. So it's quite a mammoth task. The video comes in in real time, but it can be paused, rewound and manipulated at the same time. It can basically be used to spot suspicious activity, to track patrols, to assess battle damage and to locate enemy targets. And the information is fed directly back to the commanders on the ground. Sergeant John Winfield is on his second tour doing this role and he says it's tiring but rewarding. With the team I've got we're very lucky that everyone's, everyone's self-motivated. Numerous occasions where we've almost in the nick of time had that look to your left or right kind of thing and ultimately people's lives have been saved and that inspires you for the next day where you might have a, a slow day there's not a great deal going on. Well, I was shown some of the footage they've captured in the past where you can clearly see insurgent movements and where they've laid IEDs. And being able to pass on that information, having that bird's eye view of an area of operation really is invaluable to the guys here on the ground. Carla Prater and Camp Bastian, thanks for joining us today. Um, Christopher, um, obviously very much drones for surveillance purposes in Afghanistan, but how and where else are they currently being used on the global scale? Um, there's hardly an area where there's conflict that certainly American drones are not operational. In fact, it's got such a big state where the Americans are now training more drone pilots than they are fighter and bomber pilots. They're training, they've got under training at the moment 2,600 of them out at, out at Dallas Air Force Base. The RAF is working alongside them. The RAF, for example, operated drones in the Libyan war, which the Americans said, yes, we, we flew 245 uh, flights in that, uh, but the MOD has actually got to come up with the numbers that, that they've been doing so far. Indeed, and the US were, were immediately more open about drone strikes during that time, during the Libyan campaign. Why was it so difficult to get that, or why did it take so long for that information to come out that you just said about RAF uh, people piloting the drones? Because it's the MOD. I mean, it is as simple as that. The MOD don't have that sort of policy uh, to do that, nor is the MOD questioned in the same way as the, as the Americans. The Americans are actually quite proud of it. And also, you can't have 2,600 people... Do you think it's something that we don't, on... don't like to talk about? Well, then? yeah, we do talk about it. But, for example, the, um, the um, RAF system... Uh, has flown, I can't remember exactly, but it's something like 33,000 hours of drone operations in Afghanistan at the moment. Um, we don't go into details about that. We have, we've killed some civilians with our uh, drone operations, but we don't know how many Taliban we've killed. Or if we do know, we are not saying. And there is the difficulty, and there's the difficulty of taking the whole thing, anything else but sceptically. We should do because drone warfare is the immediate future of air warfare, let's say in 20 years' time, and we're building up to that. At one point, you, you won't have piloted aircraft. It'll all be drone air, 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 aircraft for, for short areas. Now, 
what we were hearing earlier, for example, uh, being able to go and have a look and pick up intelligence. We don't, we, the RAF, for example, don't have access, and, unless it's from American, satellite information, because we don't do satellite intelligence gathering. And so the drones, when you can operate yourself at a tactical level, level even a theatre level, that becomes even more important. We're on the ground floor of that. But I promise you, drones will be flying over everywhere in the United Kingdom because drones are the future for all sorts of things we're doing in civilian life as well. All right, Christopher, stay with us. Sit rep with Kate The Prime Minister tells BFBS he's proud of the armed forces who stepped in to cover Olympic security. And we talk to the military historian Anthony Beaver about his bestseller, The Second World War. BFBS Sit rep. The number of people placed in permanent jobs has fallen for the second month in a row. A report by KPMG and the Recruitment and Employment Federation said there was still a high degree of uncertainty among employers. So what does this mean for those who are about to leave the forces? Well, a little earlier I spoke to the Managing Director of Force 10 Recruitment, Tony Ward, and Major Glyn Lewis, who's on the books of Force 10 after leaving the Army in March. I started by asking Tony what the job market was like for those leaving the forces well the jobs market on general at the moment is the balance of power is clearly with the employers so they have uh, the, the power to choose who they're looking for at any one time uh, and that does disadvantage ex-servicemen um, somewhat why is that exactly Civilian employers are always a little bit nervous about employing uh, somebody from the armed forces because they haven't got the um, the relative experience in a similar area in Civvy Street. So they're always a little bit bit nervous. But um, if there's nobody stood behind that ex-serviceman in the queue, then they're, they're probably more likely to take a bit of a chance. However, if, if the perfect candidate is there with civilian experience, then they're, they're going to go with that. So how do you tell ex-service personnel to sell themselves if they're at this disadvantage? Well, that's that's the point. They do need to realise that they are a product and, and they have to present themselves as a product and sell themselves to the employer. Nobody's going to give them a job. Um, they've got to go out and get a job. Well, let's bring in Major Glyn Lewis, who's in the process of trying to find a job. Uh, Major Lewis, thanks for your time today. Tell, tell us a bit about your army career and your situation at the moment. Um, well, I started uh, as a boy soldier. I, I left school at uh, 16, no qualifications to my name. Um, I joined the Army Air Corps and worked my way through uh, and eventually left as, as a major, as a quartermaster technical. And what kind of job are you looking for at the moment? Well, I, I, that's been one of the, the, the areas and, and problems that I've uh, encountered. And I think um, Tony's been very good at... Um, actually focusing me a little bit more. Um, I, I initially, I look at job descriptions and I think, well, I could do that, I could do that, and I can do this. And um, I'm now at the point where I'm having to focus exactly on a, a, a job that I want to do. And I'm looking now uh, at logistics management and facilities management roles. And have you had many interviews? Um, very few, actually. I have had um, four Really, I went along with them because I wanted the experience of, of the interview. But um, the, the the jobs that were, were on offer really didn't um, didn't suit. But uh, I went for, I went for the interview experience. The the problem you have is is getting that interview and getting through the um, recruit 
recruitment agency um, process. It's it's all electronic now. There's very little face-to-face um, meetings, and therefore, you know, you really do have to sell yourself on on your CV and your covering letters. And what kind of feedback did you get as a result of those interviews? Well, well, the interviews, the, the feedback. In fact, one of them was um, a, a gentleman was very honest in in that. Um, he said, do you know what, I'm not going to employ you because if I employ you, um, I think I'll fear for my own job. Um, what, just so, too good? Exactly, yeah. So it, it is, you know, he's been the only one that, that, that said that. Um, others have just said you don't quite quite match um, the, the criteria that we're looking for. Um, and two of them I, I, I actually wasn't interested in. As I say, I went along for, for the experience. Uh, Tony Ward, if we just come back to you, um, what, what we were just hearing there was sometimes the difficulty in actually say, knowing exactly what you want to do because for years someone in the armed forces might have been very good at, at being efficient, following orders and doing many things. How do you actually hone that down when you get into civilian life? Well, that's, uh, we, we try and encourage them into to focus. Most, most servicemen go from, from mission to mission or from, from challenge to challenge, you know, whether it's an uh, inter-squadron sports day or, or an operation or, or an exercise. You've got a clearly defined goal and, and you, you, you muster everything you need to, to deliver that. They do struggle when they come out if they don't focus in on that goal. And, 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 and unfortunately, wanting a job, any job, isn't focused enough uh, to to help you you know zoom in on on the on the right thing. What's your position? Do you think there should be positive discrimination for people who are leaving the armed forces? Certainly, um, we've worked quite closely with with Doncaster Council and, and the mayor of, of Doncaster, who, who's quite unique and has, has has a little bit of autonomy, is quite vocal about. Um, you know, having positive discrimination against ex-servicemen, not not unlike the, the you have with disabled people. You know, if they've got the right ticks in the boxes, guarantee them an interview. And and ex-servicemen do really shine on interview much more than they do on a on a piece of paper. And Major Glenn Lewis, when's your next job interview? Uh, well, fortunately, I've got um, one um, interview on Tuesday, and another that uh, sorry, that's Wednesday, and another on this Tuesday that uh, Tony uh, has kindly arranged for me. And we wish him well. Major Glyn Lewis and Tony Ward from Force 10 Recruitment speaking to me earlier. Uh, Christopher, the MOD says that 96% of service leavers get full-time employment within six months. What's the problem? It's not, it's not a six-month thing. Uh, and you better look at those figures very carefully because it's how many people actually stay in, uh, in, in the jobs. If you go back to when this whole idea about people changing their trades was was devised, you go back to 1983 with the closing of the last pits down in Wales, Lewis Merthyr uh, pits, and they said it's not six months, it's not 12 months, see where these people are in three years, then you've created what they call placement employment and what the figures are this week all about the placement employment. But there are two problems. Uh, The majority of uh, manufacturers... Uh, certainly, and some commercial businesses do not trust the military. And why, what, why is that? I mean, they don't understand the culture. They don't understand the culture. There's a second part of it, is government says, look, you know, our brave boys and girls, they're heroes and heroines, bring them back, give them a job. To do what? It may be that they don't fit in. There are some puzzles that go on in, in the military mind that's used to being organised, that's used to having 
uh, even a basic thing such as military, by and large, evening quarters, go home to the military every night. They're part of a community. To get back into civilian life after, say, like the major has been in 20 years, is quite different. There's one other thing that's coming up. In 2014-15, the Afghanistan effect, the affection for the military, is going to start to dissipate. It's going to be even harder for the military to get jobs. This is BFBS. Sit rep. The Prime Minister has sent a message of thanks to forces personnel for their contribution to the London Olympics and offered apologies to their families for disruption to their summer holidays. Mr Cameron also praised the efforts of sportsmen and women from the services taking part in the Games. He spoke to BFBS reporter James Hurst, who put to him that the success of London 2012 couldn't have been achieved without the help of the armed forces. Certainly they've been a really important part of it and they've made a great contribution. They were always going to make a contribution, not just in terms of uh, security of the whole games, uh, but also security of individual venues. They've done more than we originally asked them for and they've been fantastic. And I say that as someone who's spoken to probably hundreds of troops over the last um, 10 days and universally the reaction I've had from the troops is one of being very pleased to have played a part but above all from the customer and the visiting politicians, business and athletes all very very positive about what our troops have done. You've spoken as you say to hundreds of those troops, have you satisfied yourself that the accommodation, the facilities they've been given at very short notice has been up to standard? Well some has been better than others, I think obviously the um, soldiers from Scotland had, a, had some particular issues because of course the school holidays are in July and I specifically asked if as many of them who could be released early could be released early. Uh, the accommodation at Tobacco Dock which I saw for myself, some of it was good, some of it less good but in every case what I found was a bunch of people that were pleased to be playing a part and, and doing that incredibly well. You mentioned school holidays, for those families who have had an Afghanistan deployment this year, six and a bit months apart, plus all the pre-deployment training, they would have been looking forward to spending the school holidays together. Do you recognise the short notice deployment has caused some frustration for those families? Yes, of course, it has caused some frustration. And, you know, we did have to call up more troops than we originally planned. And for those people, that did cause some disruption. But as I say, as I've been round talking to as many soldiers as I can and uh, sailors and airmen, uh, the overwhelming reaction has been, we're pleased to pay a part. We know that's what we're there for uh, when things are, gaps are needed to be, to be filled. Some some frustration, yes, about holidays. I hope that time can be uh, made up, but I think they've done a very good job. And some smiles from the armed forces when Britain's first gold medal came courtesy of a member of the armed forces. That's right. I mean, I think, um, you know, uh, Heather Standing did an absolutely brilliant job, and those pictures of her comrades in arms jumping up and down in Camp Bastion are pictures that I think the whole country would have seen. It was a great reminder uh, what our armed forces bring in terms of sporting prowess as well as everything else. And of course, Lieutenant Peter Reid's getting a, a, a gold in the men's row. We've also seen contributions from Royal Marine Chris Sherrington, uh, Trooper Emmanuel Narty in the judo, not winning medals. It, it does show quite how much of a breeding ground, a nurturing ground for sport our armed forces are. That's right, and not just for um, Team GB. There have also been members of the armed forces serving our country who've been in the Ghanaian team, for instance, at, the, um, at this Olympics. So I think it is a great reminder of all that they bring. Above all, what I want to say is a very big thank you to all those armed service personnel who've taken part, and a big thank you to their families, and apology for any disruption. I'm afraid these things do sometimes happen, but for the country's sake, I'm sure it was the right decision to call up almost more troops than we needed to make doubly certain that there wouldn't be any hiccups. 
are you confident the armed forces can continue to nurture sport that way? They've shown a lot of flexibility with our athletes as they get smaller and more focused. Yes, I think they can. Obviously, the last few years, the tempo in our armed forces, because of Iraq, because of Afghanistan, has been very, very great. We're obviously winding down our commitment in Afghanistan between now and 2014. So I hope that we'll be able to go to a more, you know, a more uh, normal tempo of, of life. Uh, but there will always be occasions when the British government, the British state, as it were, will call on the armed forces. We did during the field strike, we have during the Olympics. And, you know, I think armed forces, we have to think of uh, their role as, as filling in important gaps like that as and when necessary. And they do it in the most incredible spirit when they're called on. The Prime Minister talking to our reporter James Hurst. Despite all the conflicts since the Second World War, Korea, the Falklands, Iraq and Afghanistan, if you talk about the war, no one's in any doubt what you're referring to. And the Second World War is the title of the latest best-selling book by the military historian Anthony Beaver. I spoke to him and asked him what he felt he needed to add to a subject already so comprehensively covered. Well, I felt, and this was actually also a personal embarrassment, if you like, that um, although I'd written about many aspects of the Second World War, um, I didn't really feel that I knew how the whole thing fitted together, particularly the global aspect. Um, and that's, in a way, why I start with this story, this extraordinary story of this Korean who's uh, uh, forced into the Japanese army, then captured by the Russians at the Battle of Kalkingal, and uh, then captured by the Germans and forced into German uniform, and is finally captured by the Americans in North so it does two things. It sort of shows the global aspect, but it also shows how the individual had virtually no control over their own fate. Your point being that, that the, the war didn't start with the invasion of Poland. It started further afield and sooner. Well, yes. I mean, if you're, if you're Chinese, um, you know, the war started in 1937 or even in 1931 with the Japanese occupation of Manchuria. So many different countries have their own perspective. And I thought that was why it was terribly important to try to give an overall, uh, an overall view and also fitting the different uh, campaigns on different sides of the world and how they all related to each other. Do you think to a certain extent that is a failing of modern politics today, that uh, we, we fail to look back at history and look at problems in a vacuum without considering the global context? I think that's certainly one of the problems. Um, there is another aspect, actually, which is a danger, uh, if you like, about the way that the Second World War has become such a dominant reference point for every crisis or every conflict. I mean, we see at the moment with um, the crisis in, in Europe, the way that uh, automatically the Greeks start portraying Angela Merkel as uh, with a Hitler moustache and a, uh, an SS uniform. Um, and I'm afraid, you know, uh, they may say don't mention the war, but I'm afraid the war is still very much with us. So do you think we have learnt what perhaps we should have learned about the Second World War? I'm afraid certainly some politicians haven't, and um, in many ways nor has the press, because there's always this temptation to make um, instant comparisons, which can be highly misleading. Uh, one mustn't forget the way that Eden compared NASA to Hitler at the Suez Crisis, or uh, George Bush compared 9-11 uh, to Pearl Harbor. Um, these are always terribly misleading, but what one can do is learn from the mistakes of the past and, and see, watch out for certain danger signals. Do you think in any way there were any mechanisms in place uh, that could have meant the Second World War might have been avoided? 
I think it's very hard to see how it could have been avoided knowing that Hitler was determined to make that war. And once he had achieved power uh, and had developed the arm, German armed forces in the way that he had and was determined to use them, um, it's very hard to imagine how it could have been avoided at that particular stage. You've said that you're uneasy about the way historians are asked to, to predict the future. They're called upon, perhaps, in, in current conflict situations to draw upon their knowledge of the past in order to, to give some guidance about what, what, what might come. But surely you, you do need to learn from what's gone before. Oh, absolutely. You should certainly learn, the, as I said, the dangers of the past. But, I mean, um, the idea that because you're facing such uncertainties in a, in a crisis or a conflict, uh, this idea that you can look to the past um, to get some form of predictive mechanism um, is actually dangerous. I mean, I remember before the Iraq war, virtually every newspaper in this country had the same idea, and they were all getting in touch with me, asking why the Battle of Baghdad was going to be exactly like the Battle of Stalingrad. Um, and I had to explain to them time and again that it wasn't. The military historian Anthony Beaver speaking to me a short while ago. Um, Christopher, earlier in the programme we were talking about Syria and Egypt briefly. Um, 18 months on from the Arab Spring and the consequences there. A bleak reading of them, really. Um, but what about Libya? Yeah, Libya this week. Uh, on Tuesday, uh, or no, yesterday now, Wednesday, um, the Transition Council, which has been, was there at the beginning, was coordinated the assault on the Gaddafi forces, etc., liaised with the United Kingdom, United States, United Nations, has handed over the authority for the running of the country to the Assembly, i.e. it's a sort of parliament. Um, it's a huge problem. It's a huge advance for a start because this is democratically voted for. The biggest problem it has immediately is to make happy the expectations of the Libyan people. It's got some practical sides, what you do about all these different tribal, all these different factions, all the different militias and the weapons they hold, and what you do particularly about eastern Libya, which has most of the oil and most of the disagreements about the numbers of people it will have in the final parliament. Now, all that sounds terribly complicated. These guys are doing it for the first time. 40, for 40 years, it was just Gaddafi. They're doing it for the first time. That's the height of the problem, but it is, in theory, in theory, why the United Kingdom, the United States, to some extent, and other countries went in to help the Libyans of the, of the Transition Council to actually fix Gaddafi. They did that. Now it's up to them. Well, that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to all of our guests and, of course, to you, Christopher. Thank you. You can join the debate by following us on Twitter. We are at BFPS SITREP. Do join Glenn Mansell at the same time next week. But from me, Kate Joe, Chabot, for now, bye-bye.